0: Part of that was because of various scandals i saw going on in the 1980s and 90s in mainstream evangelical christianity mm-hmm. and uh thinking to myself well why don't we just do it like the early church did i'm looking at the book of acts and they just they just all were in one accord right not the vehicle you know but the mindset <laughs> Welcome to On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley from the Coming Home Network. If you're not familiar with what we are, uh, we were founded by Marcus Grodi about 27 years ago to help people from every background imaginable in pastoral care as they explore questions about the Catholic Church. Ken, I don't know about you, but I'm excited to dig into today's topic.
1: Yes, I am quite excited, as this is the first episode of a new show we're doing.
0: Yes, and uh, looking at some of the major issues that uh, Protestants have about Catholics or that Catholics sometimes have about Protestants and bring our own experience to bear. Uh, Ken, just the short version of my story, a uh, lifelong Christian. I was United Methodist, then Nazarene, then Free Methodist. Went to Asbury College, played in a bunch of Christian rock and roll bands, and eventually started a Bible study that ended up as a house church. Along the way, reading lots of G.K. Chesterton and Flannery O'Connor and Tolkien and discovering, among other things, church history. And uh, came into the church in 2005 after a lot of exploring. You were you had a little bit more
1: that was on clear. the
0: line when you were when you that were making quick. your journey.
1: That was quick. But I have to ask you: Were you actually in a band that was titled "Throw Jezebel Down"?
0: It was actually "Fling Down Jezebel."
1: Oh, fling down! That, but you meta- being you being the reformed bad. guy, I was also that's in a Christian
0: a Christian metal band called Death Through Adam. So I know that oh. uh, you reformers love the Book of Romans.
1: So. Okay. Well, my story, uh, I'll give the simple version as well. Um, came to Christ in a totally non-denominational evangelical environment. In fact, it was a house Bible study um, where I learned about the Lord. And, and during that time that I came to it, I had a radical conversion to Christ when I was 22. I wound up uh, uh, going to Bible college, getting a degree in Bible and theology, going to Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, where I got a master's degree. Um, then I was ordained into the Baptist ministry. So I was an evangelical Baptist pastor for about 11 years. What happened to me is that I learned that an an old friend had become Catholic and this was someone that I couldn't ignore. This was someone's conversion that I couldn't ignore because he was just a very bright guy and someone that I had uh, very much respected. So listening to his conversion story, beginning to debate with him, to talk with him, beginning to read and learn, I just became extremely curious with the case for the Catholic faith. And the realization that as far as I'd gone in my own studies and all, because I was, I was a serious student, I did not really know the case for Catholicism. So my curiosity that, that I see now as being born of the Holy Spirit, it was God's work in me. Um, my curiosity led me to begin to rethink my whole worldview in terms of the Bible, in terms of history, theology and all that and I wound up um, resigning my ministry to enter the Catholic Church in 1996, a long time ago. So you
0: beat me in by nine years. Yes, So um, I'm ahead of you. You got nine more years of expertise (laughs) to be able to bring to this discussion. Yeah. Um, Well, today's topic is church history, and our various views on it and how digging into it was a big part of what led both you and I from two Mm -hmm. very different Christian traditions Mm -hmm. into the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Um, I mentioned that I started off united methodist nazarene free methodist you know Mm non-denominational house church i went from bigger to smaller denominations progressively and a big part of that was because of various scandals i saw going on in the 1980s and 90s in mainstream evangelical christianity Mm -hmm. and uh thinking to myself well why don't we just do it like the early church did i'm looking at the book of acts and they just they just all were in one accord, right? Not the vehicle, you know, but the mindset. Everybody just clearly did what Jesus yeah. said. They didn't invoke their political agendas. They did, They all were sharing everything in common. They just met in people's mm-hmm. houses and shared everything. Why can't we just do that? And the assumption was that that's how the church operated until some unspecified time when they decided that they were going to get guys in funny hats mm-hmm. to make all these decisions, you know? And... Mm-hmm. I never really thought to explore that because my general impression of church history was that it looked a lot like the thing that I wished church was like now. Um, I wonder for you mm-hmm. what your what your impressions were of church history, even the importance, because for me at Asbury, I took like scripture classes, I took theology classes, I never took a church history class.
1: Hmm. Well, um, okay, well mine is a little bit different. How did I understand the early church when I was a Protestant? And I would have to say that like most evangelicals that I have known in my many years as an evangelical, I had a, at best, a hazy view of the earliest centuries of Christian history. I had taken church history courses both in college and then again, Matt, in seminary, and yet when I think back to those courses, the early church courses, they mainly focused on the rapid growth of Christianity spreading throughout the Roman Empire, all the way to England and and whatnot. They focused on the waves, successively, of persecutions that Christians had had experienced. And when they focused on doctrine, um, they focused pretty much on the development of the doctrine of, of theology proper and Christology, that is the doctrines of the Trinity the doctrine of Christ as the God-man, you know, and all the Aryan crisis and all the other permutations of that, um, I didn't remember much of a focus on other issues. That is, what did early Christians really believe? And so basically what I thought, this this is the assumption that I was operating under all those years, was that the church that had been founded by the apostles was pretty much like my church. It was an evangelical Baptist church in terms of theology and practice and whatnot. And that somehow, over the course of three or four hundred years, it had deformed itself into this monstrosity that we refer to as Catholicism. You know, most of the time the name Constantine comes up. When when the Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal, then that's when it really started to warp itself out. But that's sort of the basic image that I had. It had just slowly degenerated and deformed itself into Catholicism.
0: So... I had an unexamined assumption and we're going to dig into some more of that here in just a second. I had this unexamined assumption. I knew that the letters of St. Paul and the gospels were, were compiled and and officially established as the New Testament sometime mm-hmm. in the 4th 5th centuries. But I also believed that the church fell away before Constantine. Did, I don't think I ever examined the the inconsistency in my own mind that I believed that the church fell away completely before we ever got the Bible. I mean, these are the kinds yeah, of that's... questions I didn't even ask uh, yeah, to give you an idea of, uh-huh. you know, of how much I just assumed that, you know, we figured out the Trinity, we figured out these other things, the yeah. divinity of Jesus. And when I said we, I guarantee you, I did not mean the Catholic Church, right? Um, I wonder what it was that that, that sort of triggered a, a sort of change, a change of trajectory for you.
1: Well, for, for me, you know, as I said Earlier, I became curious about Catholicism. and so I began studying everything and kind of all at the same time. I was listening to tape debates, I was looking at the biblical material, the theological material. Um, but in order to tell the story, you can't just shoot it out like a you know, like a confetti in all directions. So history was one of those issues, and it was an important one. And this is what happened. I was reading conversion stories at that time. And I picked up a conversion story by a certain gentleman named John Henry Newman. You're
0: in the um, danger zone now, man.
1: His book, um, Apologia Provita Sua, which was his conversion story, I read that. And then I read his very famous classic essay on the development of Christian doctrine. Okay, I knew this guy was smart. I mean, <laughs> you, you can't read three pages of Newman without realizing you're dealing with a genius here. And I knew that he was one of the most well, the most famous Anglican convert to the Catholic Church of the 19th century. Um, Maybe the most famous convert of the entire 19th century, I don't know. But here's what happened, Matt. I'm reading his book, The Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine. And early on, page five or six, I run into this. And I'm going to be reading a few passages from Newman for you so you can get the feel. I run into this, quoting Newman. History is not a creed or a catechism. History gives lessons rather than rules, still no one can mistake its general teaching in this matter, whether he accept it or stumble at it. Bold outlines and broad masses of color rise out of the records of the past. They may be dim, they may be incomplete, but they are definite. And this one thing at least is certain, the Christianity of history is not Protestantism. If ever there were a safe truth, it is this, okay? So
0: that's, that's a hard th- thing for someone who has thought that we were just getting back to the basics. That we were, well, you weren't a primitive Baptist, yeah. but there are primitive Baptists yeah. who'd say we're doing it just like they did in the days of Paul the apostle.
1: Well, yeah, I, I mean, uh, of course, I assumed that what that my theology was simply a reflection of the New Testament's teaching, and we always wanted to get back to the New Testament and the
0: old time religion, you know? Yeah,
1: and because of that we had a tendency to not look very seriously or very closely at what Christians of the second century believed or the third or the fourth or fifth. So I'm reading Newman and and I hear this and I'm thinking, what? So I flip over like one more page and I run into this, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And I'm like, this guy is like, I I had never heard anybody state something that bluntly and that boldly, but he went on to 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 elaborate, I flip over one more page or so, and this is what I read, Matt. Again, quoting Newman, this utter incongruity between Protestantism and historical Christianity is a plain fact, whether regarded in its early or in its later centuries. So much must the Protestant grant that if such a system of doctrine as he would now introduce ever existed in early times, it has been clean swept away as if by a deluge suddenly, silently, and without memorial. So so I'm reading this, and at this point, my mind is beginning to race. And, And I'm thinking, have I heard this guy, I mean, clearly, is this what he's saying? I mean, is Newman actually saying to me, an ordained Baptist minister, is he saying that if the system of doctrine that I hold and that I've been teaching in my church, if this system of doctrine ever existed in the early centuries of the church, It has been clean swept away, and there's no evidence of it? Yeah. It's quite a challenge.
0: Yeah, more than a little bit of a challenge. And I even remember running into some people who would say, well, the fact that it doesn't exist just proves how draconian the early Catholic Church was in wiping it away. But that, man, that beggars a lot of belief. Because we still have records of the Manichaeans— we still have records of the Gnostics. Right. We still have records of every other kind of heresy that was rolling around. How is it that only the That's Baptists, a- only the Nazarenes, only that strain got squashed out completely and erased?
1: That's a good question. I mean, that is a standard question. I mean, even if you're able to demonstrate to a—even when I'm able to demonstrate to one of my Protestant friends that the early church seems awfully Catholic— that's a standard one. Well, who knows? Maybe the church just departed from the truth really early on. Then why do we have you so know.
0: much Donatist stuff out there, yeah, or right. Docetists, or people... Or the who Catholic were...
1: Church buried the evidence of the Baptists, right. and that, that kind of thing. Well, anyway, so I, Matt, I'm being struck by what I'm reading in um, Newman. I'd, frankly, Ken, I don't know
0: about you, but for me, when I came to this point that you're describing right now, I was kind of embarrassed. You know, I, I yeah. felt like kind of a... I just felt sort of stupid about the whole thing.
1: I felt some of that too, because truly, um, among my friends, I thought that I was someone who read really deeply into history, because I went all the way back and read the Puritans, you know, because I was deep in Jonathan Edwards and John Owen and whatnot. Yeah, somebody and, says and Church Fathers, reading, you're
0: thinking Calvin.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I was reading Calvin, and I was reading Luther, and so I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm deep in history. And suddenly, this guy's saying, no, no, I, I'm talking about the 2nd century, and the 3rd, and the 4th, and the 5th. and again. I had graduated from a fairly well-known Protestant seminary. I had been ordained for a number of years, but like a typical evangelical, I just hadn't spent time, I have to admit, and it is kind of embarrassing, I hadn't spent time wrestling with the question, what did Christians believe in the second century, the third, the fourth? I, I knew some of their names. I could tell you, you know, there's Clement of Rome, there's, there's Ignatius of Antioch, there's Justin Martyr, there's Irenaeus, I, I could name some of them. And here was one of the most brilliant Christian minds of the 19th century, though, insisting, telling me that if I were to actually read these guys, I would realize they were not Baptists. Yeah. It was like Newman was throwing down the gauntlet in front of me. And so this kind of moves to the next step, because what happened was I took up the challenge and I began to read the the early fathers pretty much straight through and and in chronological order as best as we know. Sure. And I had to admit... That what Newman was saying seemed to be essentially true. When the early fathers talked about the church, it didn't sound like the way I talk about it. When they talked about tradition, when they talked about the sacraments, when they talked about the rule of bishops in the church, they did not sound, at least Baptist, Okay? At that point, I would say, I mean, maybe they sound like an, the Orthodox Church, or maybe they sound like high Anglican, maybe even high Lutheran, but they certainly didn't sound like an evangelical. Like storefront
0: Baptist. No, they did you not know, sound that way. This brings up a, a great point, and someone's brought this up on The Journey Home, and of course, the the Coming Home Network, among other things, produces The Journey Home with Marcus Grodi on EWTN, and and a guest recently said something that struck me like a smooth stone from David struck the, the giant <laughs> and he fell dead. Um, But he said these things, you know, there are a lot of divisions among Christianity Mm -hmm. in the present day. But the things that we agree on, the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus, uh, those were major debates in the early church. And now those are the things that all Christians hold in common. The things that we're debating these days that we have differences on, like baptism, ask 10 Christians what baptism is, and you'll get 10 different answers. Those were unquestioned unifying principles in the early church.
1: That, that is a, quite a point you're making there. Yeah, it's true, the things we agree on are the things that, that had to be fought through with many permutations of various heresies, Arianism and Apollinarianism, Nestor, all the rest. And yet there are, which leads to a good illustration. If I can give an illustration of what I'm talking about, um, the illustration would be baptism, the doctrine of baptism. Now, this is something that, as you say, within the Protestant world, there are at least four or five different positions that are held. In my parents' uh, church, there are at least
0: three, and that's one congregation.
1: Oh, in one congregation? Yeah. (laughs) Well, baptism in the early fathers, let me give this as an illustration, okay, because this is one that really did hit me since I was a Baptist. And as a Baptist, of course, to summarize just very briefly, I took baptism to be a purely symbolic rite of initiation, kind of. Um, Nothing happens when you're baptized, it's just just symbolic, it's a way of making public profession of faith to the congregation, okay? Well, I start reading the early fathers. I'm reading this little letter called the Letter of Barnabas, one of the earliest writings that we have post-apostles. The subject of baptism comes up, and this is how he describes baptism. He describes it as, quote, the washing which confers the remission of sins, unquote. And then, quote, we descend into the water full of sins and defilement, but we come up bearing fruit in our hearts. And at this point, I'm just thinking, what a weird way, what a strange way to talk about baptism. I mean, I, I would never have used those terms.
0: But you know who does use those terms? Well, the Catholics. Church, Paul yeah. St. Paul, when he's talking to Timothy about the bath of rebirth, right? Yeah. <laughs> there are yeah. passages like that in the scriptures, but we had so filtered them to yes. kind of match whatever it was that we were already doing. Yeah. Yeah. that they, they didn't even register with us.
1: And, and that's the thing, in our series here, this class, this, um, this show that we're doing, we're going to come back to that point hardcore. We're going to look at the biblical material for baptism. And you're exactly right. There are all kinds of passages in the New Testament that just jump out once you see this in the early fathers. But, but I'm focusing here on the fathers. So I read Barnabas. So then I go on it and I read a little book called The Shepherd of Hermas, another very, very early Christian writing. And I run into another passage on baptism. This is what Hermas says. I have heard, sir, said I, from the teacher that there is no other repentance except that which took place when we went down into the water and obtained the remission of our former sins. And again, I'm thinking, obtained? We went down into the water and we obtained? So I I keep writing and all of a sudden I'm in Justin Martyr, the first great apologist writing around 150 AD This is what he says, As many as are persuaded and believe that what we say and teach is true and undertake to be able to live accordingly, are instructed to pray and to entreat God with fasting for the remission of their sins that are past, to entreat God with fasting while we pray and fast with them. Then they are brought by us where there is water and they are regenerated in the same manner in which we ourselves were regenerated. For in the name of God the Father, the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ our Savior and the Holy Spirit, They then receive the washing with water, for Christ said unto us, "Unless you are born again, you cannot, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven." So here's Justin describing what happens in baptism by using the word regeneration and tying it into John chapter three, which I never thought had anything to do with baptism. I never,
0: I would have never connected when Jesus is telling Nicodemus, "You must be born again of water and the Spirit," I would have just thought. Well, he just means pray the sinner's prayer, right? If, yeah, he, it, it, you don't, because if you don't, if you're not already thinking yeah. sacramentally, you just kind of gloss over things like that. But again, you're you're highlighting something that I think is so important, because so many of our traditions, especially if if you're coming from a tradition that was founded in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, uh, if it was founded in the last 50 years, mm-hmm. you are learning from someone who is reading scriptures. Based on what they've been taught by people who are alive, or people who have been born in the past five hundred years, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but if you're reading it through the lens of the people who were one generation, two generations, three generations moved from the apostles themselves, you see that they're 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 looking at a whole bunch of things that we're not looking at, and if they were passed on in these things in this mm-hmm. way, uh, you know. If you listen to the Catholic rite of baptism, any Protestant would get excited about what they hear, because as as the baptism is being described, they're hearing about the Spirit hovering over the waters at creation. They're hearing about <laughs> Noah being saved through water. They're hearing about, you know, Naaman the Syrian being <laughs> washed in the Jordan. They're hearing about literally every form of water and life as it's mentioned in the Old Testament. And I would have never. So people sometimes, if you were if. If you're from a tradition like I was, when we would say, "Well, where is this in the Bible?" we'd say, "Okay, let's do a word study and find the word baptism in the Bible." Mm-hmm. Whereas the fathers didn't look at it that way; they looked at every time that water was involved with anything and God was involved, and saw baptism. And that water was to me. Water in
1: the Spirit, yes. Yeah,
0: that to me was like, this is how the early Christians thought of the scriptures. Why is it that I'm looking at it, trying to just do proof texts?
1: You know. Yeah, and and the point you make about them being closer we are talking about people here that were one generation away some of them were actually disciples of the apostles and you know what i'm saying here is that this is the view of baptism that comes out let me hit you with a couple of more i go to clement of alexandria again one of the early christian writers he's writing in the second century and this is what he says when we are baptized we are enlightened Being enlightened, we are adopted as sons, adopted as sons, we are made perfect. This work is variously called grace, illumination, perfection, and washing. It is a washing by which we are cleansed of sins, a gift of grace by which the punishments due our sins are remitted. It's an illumination by which we behold the holy light of salvation. I read Tertullian and he says, happy is our sacrament of water in that by washing away the sins of our early blindness, we are set free and admitted to eternal life. Baptism itself is a corporeal act by which we are plunged into the water, while its effect is spiritual in that we are freed from our sins. And I'm not going to go on with big quotations here, but I could go on. I could read Saint Augustine who said, baptism washes away all, absolutely all of our sins. I can read St. Gregory of Nazianzus who said, baptism is God's most beautiful and magnificent gift. It is called gift, grace, anointing, enlightenment, garment of immortality, bath of rebirth. It's hard for me to to describe the feeling that I had uh, as a Baptist pastor. I'm reading all of these early fathers and they're all describing baptism as conferring the remission of sins, as the time when we obtain the remission of sins, as when, we are, when we're regenerated, when we're enlightened, when we're given grace. And this is what was most striking to me. And, and that's why this is such a powerful illustration. It's not as though I found some of the early fathers talking about baptism in these sorts of ways. Huh. Basically, every single time you run into one of the early fathers talking about baptism, this is the kind of language that they have. And to get back to that Newman quote that you
0: just said, if there was any evidence of people who thought what you thought about baptism, it had been completely erased.
1: Um, Yes, you know, yes, so at this point, I'm thinking to myself, what about the great church historians, you know, what what do they have to say? Because this is pretty powerful. So anyway, just one I want to read to you quickly, I picked up J.N.D. Kelly's classic work, Early Christian Doctrines, which is a book that is used as a textbook all over the world, and I... I riveted in on the section on baptism, and this is what he said. He says, from the beginning, baptism was the universally accepted rite of admission into the church. Okay, I think I understand that. As regards its significance, it was always held to convey the remission of sins. It is that washing with water, with living water, which alone can cleanse penitence. And He goes on to say a few other things. But... You know, at this point, you know I remember coming home one day when I was reading this stuff, and I say to Tina, I said, you know, honey, I've been crawling around in the early church for a while, and I've been looking under every rock, I've been looking behind every green tree, and every leafy bough, and believe me, I can't find a Baptist anywhere. Yeah, that's what yeah. I said to her, and if and and it was true, and and I want to get back to the point that you've raised because it's such a good one. One of the things that someone could say is, well, you know, the Catholic Church won the battle in the end, so they have erased all the evidence. You know, there were Baptist churches, there were Presbyterian churches, there were, you know, non-denominational They weren't called
0: that, but that theology was there, right? Yeah, that
1: theology was there, and it's been erased by the Catholic Church, just like, you know, the, the Victor writes the history-type idea, except the point you make is dead on. If that's the case, how come we know about all of these heresies from the early Church? Arianism, Donatism, Manic... You know... In other words there's no evidence that the church sought to hide various groups that existed. In fact, the church confronted these groups and that's how we know all about them.
0: Yeah. And yeah. and in addition to that, um gosh, I wish we had like 2 hours to discuss this because this is really one of those big view things. And we're just taking the example of baptism, uh, you know, you could use any kind of example. You could you, you could spend 3 times as long on the Eucharist and how uh, that's talked about in the fathers, and there is no symbolic discussion of the Eucharist as, as mere bread and wine in the Father. You can't find it; it's not
1: there. Or try reading the early fathers on tradition and how it relates to Scripture and authority and the Church. And yeah, I mean, all these subjects we'll come back to one at a time, though. You know, so, so that we can so that we can treat them.
0: But I can tell you this: when I have conversations with you know Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, especially because they're the ones who kind of more formally uh, hold to this idea of a great apostasy that everybody fell away. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they don't necessarily have a hard date as to when that happened. Some will say after the death of the last apostle, whatever it happens to be. But in order to believe that you have to believe that St. John, the beloved disciple, who was the only one left at the foot of the cross, who leaned his head on Jesus's breast at the Mm -hmm. last supper was absolutely incompetent at relaying what Mm -hmm. he'd learned Mm -hmm. to the people in his Sunday school class. And Paul and and Peter and all the rest. Let's just take John because he's a direct connection to Polycarp and Ignatius and Irenaeus, you know, three of the strongest witnesses we have from that generation right after the apostles and the generation Mm -hmm. right after that. They either had to have willfully corrupted what John did or John was just an incompetent teacher. I mean, that's what you have to believe. You have to believe that I can trust John Calvin from 500 years ago or I can trust John Wesley, who is probably more trustworthy, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, but you have to believe, I can trust those guys, but I can't trust the guys who are taught by the apostles themselves.
1: And, you know, this is something that, that hit me along the way. Um, I had always thought that the, you know, the, the groups that we as Protestants refer to as the cults, you know, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses and whatnot, I, I'd i always thought that they were insane for arguing that there is this immediate apostasy. I mean, it's so immediate in the church's history, and it's so universal that there's no evidence of it. Even you know, there's no evidence of a debate. And then, and then they say that the that the true doctrine was restored. You know, they're formally referred to as restorationist, restorationist movements. or dispensationalists. That they were restored yeah. when when uh, you know when um you know Joseph Smith comes along or when Judge Rutherford comes along. Uh, you know, in the 18th century, something like that. Or, or Ellen, ni- what's her 19th
0: name the Seventh-day Adventist? Yeah, yeah the, whoever the, the happens ni- to
1: be. 19th century. And I remember when it kind of dawned on me that as a Protestant, I wasn't really much different. You know, that my position also was that the church had apostatized and had done so, so early that you just don't really see it. You just have this kind of early church that have, that is shaping up as the Catholic church, and then it wasn't restored until the 16th century, with Luther, with Calvin, with Melanchthon, your and Swingle right. and whatnot. So, Based on who you like, you yeah. know, and and so it seemed to me that the burden of proof now, you know, once I saw what I saw in the early fathers, it seemed to me that the burden of proof should rest not with me or, or not with the Catholic to prove that this is what Christianity actually teaches. You know, as you said, to prove that this is what John actually taught. You know, that is what the Church is holding the burden of proof really would be on those who are trying to argue that somehow the beliefs of the early church are not, do not, do not reflect what the apostles had taught. You follow what I'm saying?
0: I follow exactly what you're saying. I mean, I, I think about this now, uh, it's one of the last questions that I ask myself, which is the burden of proof is not on the Catholic Church to prove that it's the one true church founded by Jesus Christ. The burden of proof is on me to prove why my weird idiosyncratic 21st century version of Christianity is Right, yeah. I mean <laughs> that's that's the that's when when it hits you between the eyes and again, man. Or Calvin's, man, I wish, or, Calvin's uh, or Luther's, or or whoever it happens to be in the thousands of denominations that have sprung up since. Um, I know that we've probably sparked a few conversations uh, that will you know continue in the comments, and I want to encourage people to do that. I also, Ken, before we go, want to encourage people to uh, look at some of your articles at the Coming Home Network. They can search your name and find, especially, uh, how you applied this question to sola scriptura. How you applied it to baptism, how you applied it to a few other things, uh, and again, chnetwork.org, and just do a search for Ken Hensley. Um, and if you're in the middle of this story, if this is, yeah. if you're actively in the middle of these questions right now and thinking, you know, what Ken and I were thinking, we were having those uh-oh moments that you know maybe we didn't, we were in, we were in the yeah. wrong camp. Um, please know that the Coming Home Network works with people like you all day, every day, and in a pastoral care situation. can you work directly with people who are actually clergy in other denominations sorting through these problems.
1: Yeah, and I work with people who constantly are having the same experience that we've described here, you know, which, which to me, I could summarize as that once I actually listened to Newman and once I actually read the Early Fathers, it, 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 it just became much more difficult for me to try to insist that the early church really had been a Baptist church. It, you know, it, it had to be something else. Maybe it wasn't Catholic, maybe it was the Orthodox Church, maybe I would end up a high Anglican at that point, but I knew that I was not looking at your typical um, non-denominational evangelical. But kind of Newman,
0: Newman gives you the out, because and, Newman doesn't say to be deep in history means that you're Catholic, he just says to be deep in history means that you cease to be yeah, <laughs>
1: Protestant. Yeah, and I talk to Protestants every day, I talk to Protestant ministers. Just yesterday I had a long conversation on Skype with a young Baptist minister in Scotland who is sweating it out over these same sorts of issues. So anyway, I can't believe we're out of time, Matt. I look forward to our episode next week uh, where where we'll take on another issue and continue the conversation.
0: Yeah, chnetwork.org. Come see us and uh, please add your comments to the conversation below. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Matt Swaim. Thanks, Ken Hensley. We'll talk to you next week.
1: God bless.